Hello and welcome to Michigan and Other Mayhem, the show about Michigan, murder, mysteries, histories, and other mayhem from around the world. Your hosts are Allie and Jen. Okay, Jen, let's do this thing. Allie. Jen, how you doing? Super. <laughs> Yay. Ready to okay. talk about murder. You, I'm like, you got some more. I don't know if you've noticed, but the weather has been gorgeous lately. I've been walking the dog, and it is beautiful. It was, but there was one day last week that I thought I might die. I yeah, felt like I was in Florida. It was super hot. I always say that when the wind is hot, that it's it's horrible. It's horrifying. Right. Like, why, wind should be cooling, not hot. And when there's a hot <laughs> breeze, that's an insult. You know what I mean? <laughs> True story. I was walking my dog in front of these, across this, this house that's on the corner. And when I was in front of the house, you could hear the dogs barking on the inside. And when I went along the side of the house, the lady lets her dogs out. Now, she has two dogs, this plump, white, older dog and this young, I would say he's maybe a year old, a young um, black dog. They're both like some type of pit bull, bulldog, boxer mixes. Now, the young black one can fit his whole head and shoulders between their um, fence they have one of those iron fences and I know this because she lets her dogs out as we're walking along the side of the fence and her dog immediately tries to bite my dog in the neck oh geez yeah now thankfully I have a dog that's just filled with anxiety and doesn't like other dogs and still has some speed because he immediately bites that dog on his face <laughs> oh. yeah the dog went for his neck and he immediately turned around and said I got your face bitch and then the, <laughs> and then the other dog the little black dog well, he's not little He's actually a medium-sized kind of dog, probably grow a little bit more. Um, he immediately yelps and backs up and then looks at him like, damn, I wasn't expecting that. I think he thought he was just going to bite <laughs> Angus and we are going to call it a day. And then he did continue to bark at us the entire time we walked around because we had to go around the back to go back home. Um, uh, but he barked from a, a distance away from the fence. <laughs> no right. more lunging through the fence for that dog. <laughs> Learned his lesson. Yeah, so I was mad that like she let the dogs out, especially since her dog can make it through the fence. So right. now whenever I walk my dog, I just make sure it's in front of her house to make her dogs bark. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. And I walk my dog early, so it's on, bitch. <laughs> right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so anything about you do anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like something I would do. Right? I honestly was pulling from you. I was like, Jen would just be like, fuck you now. I'm walking in front every time. <laughs> my dog my dog will run around the backyard. He'll run around the house. You take him for a walk, man. It, it's probably maybe you get around the block. And he always, like, in the most inconvenient time, he'll, like, pancake on the ground. <laughs> and he's 100 pounds. I know. So. He's a boy. Yeah, so I'm like in the middle of the crosswalk. He's pancaked <laughs> out. He's dying. It's like, for God's sakes, you run around the yard nonstop. What's the difference? Yeah, and, and your dog is all top speed, too. Like, he doesn't go slow. He's either dead or full speed. You know what I mean? Right. Yeah, he can get to you in seconds. So walking him is an interesting thing. Yeah, <laughs> it sounds like it. I wouldn't imagine that from him. I mean, he's all go. Right. And so now I got it down to where you just have to speed walk. <laughs> and it's, it yeah, and you can't get too far away. So you got to do the block, you yeah. know, go around the block so you can end up back at my street, then go around the other side block. And then maybe you can do that again. 
you know, but yeah. It, and by the time you get home, even if you manage to get around just the block, the dog's like dying. I'm like, I can't even believe this. Like, I know. <laughs> you're panting. Like, I feel like I need to take you to the emergency room, you know, you're let the man gonna- show up though. And it's on. <laughs> True. Let somebody knock on that door. Let somebody even come onto the driveway. Oh my God. And he jumps so high. Like he's like <laughs> as tall as you are, I can jump that high. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He's... Your face is always available to me. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> so yeah. what's yours about today? Mine is about the Dearborn Heights Michigan serial killer. And I want to say this. In case anybody points this out. Well, I may have done this guy before. Okay. But um, I, I know I we've started, done repeats, but I just want to say it's been years, people. It's right. Years. And it and it was like I did scroll through looking for his name and one of our titles. But you know, we got a hundred plus here. I don't yeah. know. So I figured no matter what, well, it was interesting and I don't I remember the name, but not the whole story. So it's okay. new. I feel like it's new. And yeah, it's probably going to be done better than the last step. You know, if we did it before, I, I'm doing it better this time. Absolutely, you are. I support that. Go ahead. Do it, do it right now. <laughs> you want me to start? Absolutely. Okay. <laughs> On January 2nd, 2000, a woman's body was found in the River Route. No the Rouge River in Dearborn Heights. The woman was found with her hands wrapped in plastic. John Armstrong had not been feeling well, and he pulled over and got sick outside his car and said he saw the woman in the river. He called the police and was interviewed. John lived in Dearborn Heights, Michigan. He was 26 years old and had one young child and another one on the way. After the interview, police said that they would describe him as squirrely, but his story was completely plausible. So they let him go. Okay. The following day, an autopsy was completed and it was found the woman had been strangled Her identity was revealed as Wendy Jordan, age 39. They did perform a rape kit, but it would take months to get the results back. So this case goes cold for a period of time until the kit results come back. Now, while they waited for the results, fast forward to April 10, 2000, the Detroit police were called to a homicide on a set of railroad tracks. In all, there were three bodies found with strangulation marks on their necks. At this time, they felt there may be a serial killer out there. And the police voiced their concern that the killings could escalate. It was found the three women killed had been previously arrested for prostitution. The women were identified as Robin Brown, age 20, Rose Felt, age 32, and Kelly Hood, age 34. Near the scene, they found a coat and prescription pill bottles. The pill bottles led them to a man 
who had a previous criminal history of violent crimes, but he was investigated and cleared. Okay. Other victims who survived this person that would pick them up and try to strangle them. Um, came out giving a description of the man who was red-haired. The male drove a Jeep. He had a name tag on his clothes with the name Eric, and he had an arm tattoo of a tiger. Okay. As, now we're going to go back to to Armstrong, John Armstrong. As a As a Navy sailor, John traveled the globe, and it would be Wendy found on January 2nd that would reveal John as a serial killer of 18 women at least. He was arrested April 12th when he was pulled over driving a Jeep and had a tiger tattoo on his arm, and a woman identified him as the man who tried to kill her. He was interrogated and confessed to picking up the victims, having sex with them, and then strangling them. He also stated that he positioned the bodies of those three victims at the train tracks with the intention of coming back there to have sex with them. Oh, Jesus, I hate that. He was, of, of course, at the time charged with murder. He was found guilty and received a life sentence without parole for Wendy. He was convicted of the other killings. One there for one of them, there was a trial. He got another life sentence and the other ones. He did a plea. So he got an additional 31 years in prison. John was born in 1973 in North Carolina. And it was said he had a abusive father who sexually abused John when he was a child. When he was around five years old, his brother, two months old at the time, passed away from sudden infant death syndrome. Afterwards, John tried to attempt suicide. His father left John and his mother. And in 1989, it was reported he had started to receive treatment for the loss of his brother and the physical and sexual abuse from his father. It is not confirmed, but it is believed he started killing in 1991 and that 11 women who engaged in prostitution were killed. These killings span the globe. So Seattle, Washington, North Carolina, Virginia, Hong Kong, Thailand, Singapore. Wow. I do want to go back to the woman found in January. I found, and that was Wendy, I found a YouTube video on the Serial Killer Documentaries channel about the murder of Wendy where her sister was quoted as saying her sister at the time of her death was not a prostitute. She had previously um, been one, but she had gotten a job at a local gas station, had gotten clean, and was getting her life back on track. 
Also in this video, they talked about the victim, Kelly, found in April. It stated that Kelly came to the Detroit area after she met her fiance. She lived in a nice home. They had children together. And then Kelly and her friend got into drugs. And at some point, she left her husband and children and then became a prostitute to fund her habit. Okay. It was an interesting um, video that that channel did. Wow. That's often the case um, when women get into sex work. It's because they have a drug addiction or some type of, you know, domestic abuse or some type of issue where they're not making money regularly. And so they just go with, you know, what's available. Right. What do you got? So I have this case that starts out in 1966 and I use um, people.com and org. So what happens is a group of men search for their friend's kidnapper. It's a case from 1966. They're eventually successful 55 years later in closing the case. Ooh. Yeah. The men refer to their group as the posse. And they okay. Have, yeah. They call themselves the posse and they have fond memories of teenage Danny Goldman and they were teen themsel- teenagers themselves when Danny was kidnapped. And most of the posse were friends with him. One guy was just like a peripheral person who was in on doing this. So the posse remembers him as easygoing and friendly. When He had a backyard pool they would all swim in. Danny liked to tinker with um, electronic equipment like radios and TV. He was a senior at Miami Beach Senior High School in Surfside, Florida. And Danny had a girlfriend named Sharon Lloyd. And he was an only child. Now, later on, so the SurfsideKidnapping.org was put together by the, you know, by the posse. A lot of the work was put together by the posse. And they talk about how Sharon Lloyd, um, after the kidnapping, every day was bringing investigators and coming to the family, the Goldman house and bringing them fresh bagels every day. And Hmm. they tried to interview her and she is the only one who would not interview or would not submit to a polygraph. And they even say the thing like, hey, if you can get in contact with her, let her know that you know, we've been trying to interview her and she's been refusing. So I just want to put that out there. So on with the story. Danny's parents, Aaron and Sally Goldman, were loving parents. They were financially successful with Aaron being in construction and then in banking. And Sally was an interior designer. Sally came from a well-established family that had financial success. And the day before his 18th birthday, Danny Goldman was kidnapped from his home. It was March 28, 1966, and a man described as having a husky build and walking with a limp entered the Goldman residence through a rear sliding glass door at 4.30 in the morning when the family was sleeping. The intruder wore a cap, but didn't try to disguise his face. He had a gun, and he took control of the Goldmans. The man called each family member by their first names, letting them know that he was familiar with who they are and that this was not a random act. The intruder told the Goldmans that he expected there to be $10,000 there, which was like the equivalent of $90,000 today. And he expected that to be in the home. When, he, when the only cash that he found was in the father Aaron's wallet, he was like, okay, well, I'm going to now be an intruder turned to kidnapper. And he told the parents that he was taking their son as a hostage. He then demanded $25,000, which was an additional $15,000 more than his original request for the safe return of their son, Danny. Now, before leaving the home with Danny as a hostage, the kidnapper told the Goldman parents that he would call around 6 or 7 p.m. that night with further instructions on the release of their child. 
Danny and his kidnapper then walked out the front door and drove off in Danny's car. The kidnapper never called or contacted the Goldmans again, and Danny hasn't been seen since that night. Now, I know. Wouldn't that be just the all I'm thinking about is the parents. Like your son leaves, someone's like, hey, we'll contact you. And they never do like the hope as it must like slowly fade. It must be the most horrifying grief ever if you think about it. Right. And how weird is that that they didn't contact them? Oh, you'll find out why. Like, yeah, like this was set up this way. Yep, it really okay. was. Okay. So, yeah. David Graubart, which is part of Danny's friendship posse, recalls the days turning to weeks and months without any word on how to get Danny back and how they expected him to come back at any minute. And Aaron Goldman dies in 2010 and Sally died two years later in 2012. The posse was formed after Joe Grobart, David's brother, received a package from Sally Goldman after her death. Among the contents of the package was an open letter written by Sally. It asked the reader not to forget Danny, her only child. David and Joe Grobart were joined by Anthony Blake and Harvey Lisker and Paul Novak, forming the posse that decided to look into the kidnapping of Danny Goldman. Paul Novak was now a six-term mayor at Surfside where the crime occurred, and he was licensed as an attorney. Together, the posse noticed that when they looked into Danny's case in 2012, Danny had not been listed as a missing person in any database. So they believe without their intervention, Danny would have been forgotten. Do you know what I mean? Like nobody was looking for him. Wow. He wasn't listed anywhere. Mm -hmm. So this is what gets the fire going. Collectively, the men, and this goes for 10 years. Collectively, the men interviewed dozens of people. They reviewed thousands of documents and spent hours in informational vaults and archives. Paul used the rights of his legal license to request information files from the FBI, and it took 10 years to collect all this information. They found out that Aaron Goldman worked at Five Point Banks and had met with federal agents months before his son's kidnapping to discuss activity he felt was suspicious. Aaron was on the board of directors and felt that the bank was processing questionable loans. The posse followed the loans to associates of known crime bosses like Jimmy Hoffa, Meyer Lansky, and Santo Traficanti. And Aaron Goldman had also been a board member at Miami National Bank. The crime bosses that I just mentioned had taken control of the Miami National Bank using Teamsters fund money. Through that bank, the mob bosses were laundering large amounts of money. So Aaron's talking to the feds regarding what he believed was laundering practices, causing him to become a target. Mm-hmm. Four days, yeah, four days before Danny's kidnap, March 24th, 1966, Five Point Banks became part of a federal jury case of racketeering conspiracy. And it's believed that Aaron Goldman's cooperation with the FBI and the resulting criminal charges are what led to Danny's kidnapping. So they get these mobsters get charged with racketeering and conspiracy. And four days later, their son is um, kidnapped. So the posse was able to narrow down the list of suspects to George DeFace and Joe Chicken Cacciatore. Paul Novak noticed the link between George DeFace and Santo Traficanti, one of the, the crime bosses. And Joe is also Santo's first cousin. So both men lean to one of the mob bosses. George was an informant with the FBI and he was working actually both sides. So a fragment of a rubber glove was found at the crime scene. The posse was able to trace it back to a manufacturer in Canada who only supplied the gloves to one clinic in the United States and it was located in Brooklyn. 
George DeFace was treated at that Brooklyn clinic, the only one in this country with that particular brand of gloves. Joe DeFace and Joe Cacciatore had the same burly build and physical description. They have the same wife, Shirley Mason. They have the same job and the same car. My understanding, they also shared a residence. The two men did. Hmm. I know. I thought that was weird. I was going to get yeah. out, but I was like, Allie, focus. <laughs> <laughs> right. I was going to start to be like, how do they have the same wife? I was going right. <laughs> to. So they believe it's George who broke into the Goldman house. While it's believed that um, George breaks in, they believe that Joe waited nearby. And in two, um, 2013, a latent print was found on the back of the sliding glass door. And it was matched to George DeFace. But a second look in 2021 said that the test was inconclusive. So Joe had an apartment that was located two blocks from where Danny's car was found in Miami Beach. And it's believed that this is the location where Danny was murdered, either before or after he was placed on a boat. And the boat was called the Ponderosa, and it belonged to an associate of George and Joe, who then took Danny out into the Gulf Stream. And it's there that authorities believe that Danny was dismembered and thrown overboard. Oh. I know he, they don't believe he's alive. The posse was able to discover that the chief of detectives and the acting head of intelligence at the sheriff's office were two men who would later be linked to mobsters who are believed to have been part of the kidnapping of Danny. So the two men in charge of looking into Danny's kidnapping were linked to the mobsters. So they don't they think that's one of the reasons why it went cold. There's right. Also, that's why it wasn't listed. Yeah. Well, they yeah. They did things like purposely screwed up documents for the case, destroyed things they weren't supposed to. So they think that these are the reasons why it was never really looked into. There are also officials who took over the investigations um, for the kidnapping case. And those were both indicted in 1966 with other high profile officials. Now, their criminal charges were dropped, those two um, in the sheriff's office, because their indictment was found to have been improperly worded. Now, the posse believes that the error was done on purpose and that they purposely worded their indictment wrong so they wouldn't have to go and face criminal charges. And Wally Jefferson was the owner of the Ponderosa, the boat that took Danny out to sea. He was a former Miami uh, motorman and also worked as a bondsman. So they think that he is also linked to the police, who's linked to the mob, who's part of the kidnapping. The posse <laughs> believes that his case previously went um, unsolved due to interference of the mob and the police that were on their payroll. And it is now, though, being currently listed as solved by the Miami-Dade County Police. Wow. That's an interesting one. Yeah. Isn't that cool? I was just like, wow. they Those guys put 10 years in. And they were really lucky that Paul Novak was a lawyer because he used the, like, the Freedom of Information Act and all sorts of like lawyer requests to get information from the FBI to put together all the links that show the links to the Goldman's and the links to what happened. It was, it's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's cool. Yeah. And to be honest, I don't know what I'm doing next week. So I'm going to leave it out there. Probably a murderer who's been murdered to be honest. Well, well, you know, I think I might do murder. I never know. Normally I don't know. You know, it's whatever right before. Okay. Though I do have a list. I did make a list of things now. I do have a list of things as well. And I was thinking about to counter your boyfriends who kill. I was going to do a girlfriend who killed. And she did a very bad job of it, too. <laughs> <laughs> Rate the murder. 
Yep. <laughs> when you don't do it right. <laughs> right. Yeah. All right. Sounds good. I'll see you then. I'll see you then. Bye. All right. Bye.